are back now here at the Verisage Symposium. We're about to start our debt talks. And the first uh, provider of a debt talk for us is the person who originated the term debt talk, although he uh, had the B in there uh, in, in that it was Verisage only gave him debt. Uh, and uh, I wanted to, to, to offer this, this privilege to uh, Mr. Morris, Mr. Dan Morris, who is also one of the co-founders of Verisage along with Ron Baker and Dan and um, Justin Barnett. Since Justin is not here, he doesn't get this privilege. And co-founders also have the privilege of, of being the only ones who are allowed to go over on their debt talk. So uh, 12 minutes, sort of, Mr. Dan Morris. <laughs> That was, that was not planned, but it may work. Uh, good morning again. I'm Dan Morris. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. Um, I represent a CPA firm with offices in Portland, Oregon, Silicon Valley, Los Angeles. I have affiliated offices through Exemplar in, in a number of other cities and um, also uh, management offices in all the great tax havens uh, in the world. So I am, I am responsible for most of the New York Times articles lately and you know the Paradise Papers and Panama Papers. You can actually find my name in Panama Papers. Unfortunately, not just because I was affiliated with a bank, but that's regardless of the point. We are, let's see if this is working. Does it work? Ed? Try again? There we go. All right. I'm supposed to have this slide up for all the kinds of words that we do. At Morris and D'Angelo, we started to practice what we preach, which means <clears throat> we wanted to do an internal metamorphosis. We wanted to change. We changed our business model. For the first 20 years of my practice, I had built a model that said we would be no larger than 10 people. I never wanted to build a pyramid-based firm. I could have done that and, 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 and likely have been hundreds of people, but had chosen... To, to follow a different path. Starting about, <clears throat> just about the time of Boston, I started making some dramatic changes. I started hiring more people. I started actually hiring lawyers to work for me along with accountants. I started to change my business model and I started admitting in more partners. That finally led us to Lake Tahoe, and Lake Tahoe is instrumental to Verisage. It's where the airplane model and the Verisage's adaptive capacity really kind of came from with a, with a post-dinner uh, drive after dinner with Rick Payne. Ron and I were you know, cruising around Lake Tahoe, and we were pontificating about ways that, ways that firms should fire customers for every new one that they came in, and that would be kind of the adaptive capacity model that led us to the 777 airplane that's instrumental. And one of those foundational things that I think every, every professional who wants to move into value pricing should have two things on their, on their um, desk, their credenza on their wall. They should have William Cobb's value curve. And you should put it on 11 by 17, or what we would call here ledger paper. It's probably A2 paper if you're somewhere outside in the British world. Certainly larger than A4 paper. And you should have some version of our airplane. Um, I candidly believe that when you're having conversations with, our, with prospects and customers, if you have those two tools in front of you, then you start to make better decisions. So I was pushing for... Uh, change in our firm and, and change, as you're aware, is beliefs and words and values and communication. So I wanted to discuss a little bit of the process that we went through. And um, then if we're lucky, we may, have, uh, we may have something at the end that I do want to share. So a couple things that occurred. Um, 
We're just going to do it the old-fashioned way. Advance the slide. This should be my, well, oh, that's another title slide. One more, Ed. We'll just keep going forward. <laughs> I had this in PDF, and Ed doesn't have real Adobe on his Mac, so we we had to make a PowerPoint. So this is this is a group of my firm that... Uh, that, that supported me one day when I won in a Lifetime Achievement Award, so I wanted to let you know that um, we kind of have a new slogan here. Um, I basically like to communicate that we are an international financial services firm because we service people around the world. We're a boutique. We advise families, their wealth, their legacies, and their opportunities, and that is starting to communicate and resonate through our firm that we're no longer just merely a CPA firm. It's about our customers and their families and their legacies and their future that allows a greater opportunity for those value conversations, the kind of things that I personally really, I really enjoy. And I'm proud of the people. We have, I think we have 12 of our 18 people in, in attendance that night. And out of that 12, I think we speak 18 languages. So we are, we are an absolute Silicon Valley melting pot in, in our headquarters. And we're, we're expanding our capabilities both currently along the West Coast and the Pacific Rim. Ed, thank you. So a couple of things that we need to do is first thing we're supposed to do is we're supposed to communicate. And we have to communicate clearly. So if we're going to have a communication about what makes a good customer, I, I decided to, to throw some concentric circles in here to demonstrate ways that we are communicating it. So first of all, in order to be a good customer, the first thing you need to be is profitable. Because if you're not profitable, how are you going to pay us? Right? I mean, Rick Payne taught me that a long time ago when he was with Results. Now, we, we're, we're in the Silicon Valley, so we have an avenue of startups. So... You can have a plan to profitability, and we'll work that out. The second thing you need to be is you need to be scalable, because if all you are is what you are today, I don't think that's intellectually challenging for me as an advisor, and I don't know if I want to exchange who I, what I am as an investment into you if we're not going to have anything more than we already currently have. And finally, something I learned from Christopher Marston in, in, in the years that we've worked together is you better be in our target market. Because... If you're not in our target market, what in the hell am I doing there? Because it's not what I want to do. So the real, clearly this middle is the sweet spot. If you are profitable and you're scalable and you're in our target market, you can have these slides. We'll share these with you. This is what we do. Then you're in our sweet spot. But what do I do about people who are profitable and scalable, but they're not in our target market? What, what would cause me to allow somebody who's profitable and scalable to becoming a member of our firm? I'm much more easier to say you're scalable in our target customer, but you're working on your profit model. That's something we can do from, a, from an investment. And you can see we've got little aspects where we've got resources and likable, and there are reasons to have things. This led us to a conversation about minimum pricing. We have, we have been a timeless culture since uh, probably 1999. I met Ron in 1996. I probably stopped timesheets intellectually in about 1997. The rest of them were just lies for the next two years. Um, okay. It didn't work. It was your joke. Okay, I got to laugh. All right, we're good. So, but, but, you know, it started out, one of the things we used to do is we used to say, what's your minimum price to be? I don't know. 1% of your gross revenues. Well, when you're a half a million dollar firm, that's fine. But when you start to become a 10, 20, 50, or 100 million dollar firm, maybe 1% is a little bit rich. So then it became an emotional thing. 
It was just how pissed off I was that day could be my new minimum price. We're at Napa. We're at the Black Swan program. I'm sitting next to Daryl Golem, and somebody just really just twisted my nuts into a ringer. And I looked at Golem, and I said, my new minimum price is 10 grand or 20 grand or some number. It frequently became a minimum price whatever Ron Baker was out on the tour saying it, my minimum price was. As an example, that became the new minimum price. Ron said it was something, oh, okay, I guess that's my new minimum price. What we decided to do is I've always done a Pareto analysis of our firm, and it's been rising. And the problem is I have legacy old clients that were long before value pricing. We've decided that a new minimum price should be under a reasonable formula is two times your Pareto plus rounded to the next $1,000. So if your Pareto is $5,500, that's the 80-20 rule, then your new minimum price would be $12,000. That's 5,500 times 11 and then round up. We decided in Morris and D'Angelo, when we'll go through a 2025 plan, I think we, I think that's the next slide, Ed. If I, well, no, but we'll get there. The Morris and D'Angelo 2025 plan says $50,000 minimum minimum price by 2025. Today, candidly, our minimum price is 12 under my new formula. Our Pareto was $5,500. In the last two years, I have booked seven engagements north of $200,000. So understand, I have a lot of old legacy people in our firm, and I have fired thousands of clients. So it's taken a long time. But we're going to stair-step our way every year in increasing our Pareto till by 2025, it's, our minimum price is $50,000. And how do we do that? So we start having conversations. In order to be profitable, what do I mean? It means after you've paid your, yourself and your reasonable wage, you better have at least a quarter of a million dollars, but preferably a million dollars or more discretionary profits. I'm looking for five and 10 and $20 million in discretionary profits in candor, but I have a lot of people who work for me. But that's what I mean by profitable. I want to communicate this across the board. Ed, next slide, please. So <clears throat> what do I mean by scalable? It needs to be able to be growth. You need to be able to grow beyond your, your, your owners. You better be able to grow in complexities. And you better be able to help us f with our future target needs. That's what I mean by scalable. Something that's more and be of yourself. Ed, next, next slide. This is good, Ed. You're, you're doing a good job. So what do we do about targeting our markets? I wanted to communicate to the people who report to me in multiple offices so they understood it clearly. So, so essence, we said, here are the people that we think are our target markets. Multinational, multi-generational, multi-location. Family offices and all the rich people that I know of own real estate. So we're going to have a very continuing target with real estate. I've recently gotten engaged in the, in the Monaco Super Yacht show. Um, that's a completely new era. People who get to buy half a billion dollar toys are people I want to hang out with. So clearly wealth presentations, technology, and startups, but I really like what's more on the right-hand side. I like it that says, here's who we're going to work with. This is Morrison D'Angelo's value statement. You better be likable. You better be pleasant. You should listen to our advice. You got to believe what we believe. And that's not just in business and finance. That is what we believe, that we're going to invest ourselves to enrich our communities, our neighborhoods, our families, our generations. We are going to leave something behind that wasn't there at the beginning. And if you can't believe that, then you should go find somebody else. 
Um, and I want you to be interesting in life and interesting in business because I get really bored with business, but interesting in life I really like. I want to know that you've been to very strange places in the world. I interviewed a guy one time, became a great great employee, largely because his cover letter said that he quit Deloitte and Touche and backpacked around the world, and I just wanted to compare mountain ranges with him. So I invited him in solely so I could figure out which mountain ranges he was and whether he was bullshitting me about whether backpacking around the world. And um, we had a long conversation about the Alps, the Atlas Mountains, and the Himalayas, and uh, I hired him. So that's how you get there. Ed, next slide. Oh, I'm a misfit. I hire misfits. I call this the Rudolph Syndrome. We are an island of misfits. We are misfit toys. I really like people who are, who are misfits. And I'm proud of this. And I think it's something that uh, I'm actually having, I'm actually meeting a customer in Portland, Oregon, and he was referring to his team members as misfits. And uh, he liked that we were misfits. So this is something we like. So we are in our misfits. And uh, how are we doing on time, Ted? Ed? Oh, I'm almost out. One more thing. Uh, one more thing. Next slide. I think I have a new answer for the value conversation. Some of you have podcasted and interviewed me. Some of you think that I understand this concept of the value conversation. But it's lacked something for me for a long time. So I want your input here. I want you to think about this. I want you to consider something that I'm referring to as value consideration. That, that the value conversation was focusing on the upper two wheels, personal firm, what was in it for us, and what was in it for the customer. And that was really good. We could find out why me, why now, why in this manner. We could have conversations about how to determine what might be a value price. But I was missing something. And that something was bothering me. And I think it's value on the outside. And, and, it, and I was trying to explain this to Ron. And I said, you know, it, it's to some akin almost Adam Smith's invisible hand. If I'm going to engage our firm and our intellectual capital with people who are like-minded and like-being people, and we're going we're gonna to deliver work, I want to see something more than just projects or tax returns or consultancy advice. Or, or it's not necessarily changing the world, but I want to see that there's some benefit to that synergy that's above and beyond. It could be psychological. It could be spiritual. It could be something that's driving a new aspect. It could be we're going to take these great profits that you're going to help us have, and we're going to, to develop some form of a charitable intent, and we're going to bring clean water or something to the world, and we're going to change the world to make it a better place. And then now I have some outside concept associated with value. And I want it to be value consideration. And, and I will tell you that I incubated this over the last few weeks. I finally put words together to it about two weeks ago. And I felt this is the first time I have publicly disclosed this at all. And I don't know if this is the answer, but I really would like to have your consideration and input to enhance and move the needle as it relates to conversing with our communities about value and what it takes ultimately to be true value service providers. Next slide, Ed, I think is a thank you. There we go. All the ways that I could say thank you in my plan. Thank you. All right.